Welcome to Untangling Christianity, episode 49. On this show, John and Greg attempt to diffuse destructive ideologies, unsnarl confused ideas, consider love and truth in Christianity. I hope you'll come along for the conversation, and you can be part of that conversation by leaving comments at the website, untanglingchristianity.com slash 49. You'll also find related notes and links for this episode at the same place. The launch point for today's podcast was a conversation Greg and I were having before we got started, which ended up just turning into the podcast, around some courses in mediation and a certification program that Greg is taking. Eventually, the conversation turns to chapter 6 and 7 from the book The Misunderstood God, The Lies Religion Tells About God by Darren Hufford. I think that's why I, part, I'm, I like, not only am I like, I don't want to say stuck in yesterday, but I'm just like, wow, this is really cool. And I'm really, you know, excited by yesterday. And then I'm thinking, you know, what, what you're really doing is you're helping people be their best selves. Totally. We, yes. It may not work and it may totally fall flat, but you're trying, you're kind of looking to expand the possibility for that and to see, you know, ultimately the, for the, for the possibilities of goodness that can come out of that. And that for me is so exciting. It's just, and I guess if I had to, if I had to like, you know, in some ways characterize what it is to be, be a Christian and to be in a love relationship with God, it's to allow my best self to be developed, nurtured, brought out. And so that in any instance where I'm helping this, I'm part of like acting towards the furtherance of the kingdom of God. You know, and, and it sounds really, it might sound really rather lofty, but I, I really think it's quite true. Well, it's, it sounds lofty, but it's, it's achievable on a very uh, simple level. Yeah, and I think that's the cool thing about it is that it's not, uh, you know, it's not this, this, this idea uh, of, you know, God's kingdom is something that's completely divorced from, you know, normal reality or, you know, what exactly is this? Is some theological concept that really has no purchase on like everyday life. It doesn't really mean anything. Well, it means everything. You know, you see two people that have, be, they're, they're, they're totally entrenched in these positions and they're hating each other. And, you know, in some ways, some of those orientations are, yeah, I would hate that sort of thing as well. But, you know, what, what, is that all that we've got here? Is that, is that the sum of what things are reduced to? You know, we have an issue, an argument, a problem, and that means things are broken and they can't be put back together. And so life is just about, trying to avoid everything getting broken because and sooner or later you know it's a very despairing picture if you look at it that way sooner or later you know stuff's going to get broken and because we can't fix it you got to just move on and that means you know relationships are i guess kind of disposable or they have um, shelf lives of indeterminate lengths and we're just got to get used to disappointment and I think that those things are just lies. They're, they're, they're not true. Um, and, and even though for many people, that may be their experience. And I think what, what, what mediation does is it's not only saying it's not true, but it's saying this can be a new experience for you. This can be experience, an experience of things, you know, coming together, working out, 
being rebuilt, being put back together. And out of this, you can see both the other person differently, but also yourself differently because you are participating in this process. This is not a an arbitrator who's coming in and saying, you give me all the information, okay, here is my um, experienced and credentialed opinion of how to do this. And by the way, it's binding. No, no, no. It's you, the participants. You're sizing things up. You're coming to conclusions and you're carrying them out. You're following them. There's no monkey on your back. There's no legal process or uh, whatever uh, constraining you. And so that for me is really, it's just, it's empowering. It's, it's every day. It's experiential and it's, it's valid, you know? So, wow, we should have a podcast about that. <laughs> <laughs> well, what, well, yeah, I think what, what jumps out at me there is that it's very easy to try to live in a way that you avoid conflict and avoid risk because it feels safer. And it sounds yeah. like what mediation is providing is a safe place to have constructive conflict. Yeah. Yeah. Or, or, or a kind of an acknowledgement that yeah, conflict's there and it actually has a value. There actually is a productive side to two people being passionate about something. You know, it's almost like it's, it's a, the conflict, when you look at it from the point perspective of passion, is almost like this very sticky and thorny um, situation where you've got two people adhering to something true. And the truth is, and they've, they've each got a part of it, like that old story of the three blind men and the elephant. You know, they're each touching a different part of the elephant. And they say the elephant is this or that. And they're all right in their own specific re respects, but they're not right in the total picture. And so I think what mediation is doing is it's, it's kind of allowing these really kind of, you know, it's, it's, it's kind of like the elephant thing, except instead of saying, you know, the elephant is like, a, you know, the guy touching the leg saying the elephant is like a tree trunk. It's more like the elephant is a tree trunk. You know, it's like this really, this is the way it is and there's no other way. Right. And it's allowing that, it's helping that process to kind of, or that um, fixed focus, that definite um, stance to become less definite, less fixed, less, uh, you know, open to possibilities. And so, but it is a lot about, it's about fostering truth. You know, there's still the tree trunk at the end of the day. There's still the legs. There's just more. Yeah, what's interesting is in a, in a church or a religious, a Christian context, this... There's <laughs> this idea doesn't fit very well. No. Well, the the idea that everyone kind of has, you know, different pieces of the truth and they're all true. That's not possible. There can only be one right and one wrong here. <laughs> <laughs> that's what I well, my, That's what I'm drawn to. Oh, I see. Well, yeah. I guess I guess that's the way we want it. Although, you know. There are those kind of interesting ideas. We, we talked about this during the week, you know, how the idea of the Word of God, you know, reflecting back on a, uh, what was that, a Wayne Jacobson podcast? Yeah, it was uh, part of the Jesus Lens series. Yeah. And, and, um, and Jesus as the Logos, as the Word, you know, and that this text we have is, is itself incomplete and it's pointing forward. It's, it's pointing towards a lot of things true things about God, true things about 
the world around us, true things about ourselves as human beings. But yeah, I guess we never really focus on the incompleteness. We're so, we so want to both see it and then portray it to others as being complete and total and perfect and sort of unable to, unassailable. And I guess it's more of that sort of defense, almost sort of warfare model, which doesn't strike me as the way to go. So what truth are you seeing in chapter six or seven of Misunderstood God by Darren Hufford? <laughs> I've got to say that on the one hand, I, I, I didn't get to chapter eight, but, and I think we've talked a bit about chapter six, which is the rock star God. I think what I'd like to do, if it's okay with you, is focus more on chapter seven. I thought chapter seven did two things for me. One is it brought out in a kind of crystal clear fashion for me, one of the complaints I have about the book. But, and, and I think I'd like to take that complaint and just kind of acknowledge it and be aware of it so that when we see it or when I see it, you know, I don't find it quite as um, detracting from the value of the book. Um, and I can sort of look around it. Um, and look for the other parts that I do find valuable because in the very same chapter, in chapter seven, I think, you know, I think this is where Darren's got some gold and Darren's sharing it with us from page 72. Um, and I didn't finish page 76 and page 77, but really from page 72 to 76, maybe on page 77 as well, there's, um, there's a lot of gold in there. How about if we touch on something I saw in six, and then we'll go to the gold in seven? How about that? That sounds perfect. So we've talked about this a few times. I think what Darren is awesome about is some of painting an analogy and in very stark, uh, memorable, somewhat extreme <laughs> ways. And so I'm on yeah. 63, and he's talking about mm. how... It's fairly common for churches to focus so much on the cross and Christ's death. And actually, I'm thinking now of, of something you said in a recent podcast, who knows when it aired, but it was the whole idea of the whole point is focusing on Jesus living, not his death. Yeah. And that the New Testament is all about him bringing life and giving life. And so I thought this section was was reminiscent of a lot of Good Friday services. And I also think the, the other insight that to me that came here was Jesus never holds his death on the cross over people's head. Yeah. And yet Christianity is really good at doing that. And so I thought he kind of put that kind of crystal clear in this section. So mm -hmm. he says, we have scientifically based teachings that walk us through the pain and suffering Jesus must have gone through during the crucifixion. We make movies that dramatize the flogging and beating he underwent on our behalf. At Easter, we put together pageants and invite outsiders to come watch Jesus get the tar beat out of him for their sins. We have come to believe that it is in God's heart to hold this moment over the heads of his children in an effort to get them to obey the rules. I don't know about that part. If we are graphically reminded of the pain and suffering he underwent on our behalf, perhaps we will do our best to repay him by living a right life. Definitely have seen and heard that too much. The God I grew up with was like the mother who constantly reminds her kids of the pain she went through during childbirth in an effort to guilt them into doing what she wants. 
By the time I was 16 years old, I had witnessed more than a thousand reenactments of the crucifixion. Over a hundred preachers had reminded me that Jesus took the nails for me and hung on a cross for me. Even our communion services, rather than being a time of remembering him, have been reduced to going through a list of awful things he went through on our behalf. Sadly, the gospel message has been affected by this way of thinking. God loves you. Come to him. Has turned into, Jesus got a major beating that was meant for you, so come to him. (laughs) (laughs) That pretty well sums up a lot of the guilt message about, yeah, Jesus did this amazing thing and you really don't even care. Yeah. So we don't have to dwell there, but I... I don't know. I just kind of like the way he phrased some of that. We don't have to get stuck here, but the time for me was the Good Friday service, not Good Friday, Palm Sunday message I heard three or four years ago where it was just this earnest plea that we spend the next week reflecting on how awful we are. And (laughs) that that would really prepare our hearts for the redemption that would come on Easter Sunday. Wow. And I... Well, I was definitely the only one in our little small group that seemed to have a problem with that. Yeah, I guess I had problems with it, but I was just, I was just also scratching my head. I just thought there's got to be a better path to mm-hmm. God here. So anyway, maybe something to think about. We don't have to dwell here. We can... No, I, well, I, no, I mean, I, I, I think you've... This is good. And I had page 63 circled, and I, I've actually got a lot of comments through um, chapter six. I just hadn't gone through it right, right there, and I really wanted to focus on something positive in terms of the book. And I, I know I've made some, some negative comments. I, I think what I would say here is, um, and it kind of ties in with what I'm thinking about in chapter seven, those two sentences. Um, you read two sentences back to back, a number of them, but two in particular that I want to focus on. We have come to believe that it is in God's heart to hold this moment, the moment of Jesus' death, over the heads of his children in an effort to get them to obey the rules. And then the next one, if we are graphically reminded of the pain and suffering he underwent on our behalf, perhaps we will do our best to repay him by living a right life. And I, I, I just, um, I want to contrast those two, right? And, and I, I think that they're both, how can I say this? First of all, I think this idea that we talked about with, you know, Jesus died for you and therefore you should love Jesus is, is, is off. It's, it's very off. You know, I think the reality is Jesus, for the people that, you know, were there in first century Palestine who who met this person and associated with this person or know people that met or associated with this person, you know, unless the gospel stories are pure fiction, and I, and I don't think that they are, you know, I, I think that um, while, you know, the gospels lay things out in different ways, you know, different orders, and some contain, you know, you might have two gospels that contain a certain story and the third synoptic gospel that doesn't. Again, this is based on how they're structured and what they're trying to do and what the rules of engagement are in the first century. Um, we're not trying to write a scientific, uh, scientifically uh, historical account of someone. So we're not trying to follow the rules, let's say, that we would have now for engagement when it comes to history writing. Uh, this is um, rhetorical literature. It's designed to persuade the readers. It's not designed to bring uh, <clears throat> things that are false in, but the order that things happened in or the emphasis that they're given. The, the, in the first century in, in Palestine and antiquity, those two terms are interchangeable, in antiquity and first century Palestine, really. Um, 
those rules are fine. They work just fine. And I think we have to read these texts understanding that. And then when we do, we see that the people that encounter Jesus were deeply touched by how he lived with them and what he did, what he did for them, to them. So it's not, and, and what, what he said, how he interacted. And so we have this huge focus on Jesus' death. And again, this is this huge sort of idea of, you know, God needed something. And it's all down to what God needs. And did God need something? Well, I think there was, yeah, we've got a, the whole basis for understanding this is the covenant. The whole ability for this plan that God has said, I pledge myself to this. And if this happens and this happens and this happens, we're going to go down a good path. And if that happens and that happens and that happens, we're going to go down a bad path. Well, guess which one happened? So what are you going to do? As God, you're not just going to say, eh, you know, I can overlook the that and that and that. We'll pretend it was the this and this and this and go down the good path. No, you're not going to do that. But you're also, you know, and this is the marvelous thing, right? Because we're so focused on God as truth and God as sovereign that we totally are not blown away. And, and this is where I think N.T. Wright's work is so helpful, so informative, and so definitely correct. So fully correct and fully superior to that of his um, gainsayers and naysayers and, you know, those who detract from his work. If God is sovereign and truth is, is paramount, then what God is going to do is go down that road of saying, okay, here are the negative consequences. Here are the negative consequences for Israel. Here are the negative consequences for the rest of the world. For Israel, your exile is, um, it's just ongoing until you guys can smarten up. And you know what the reality is? They never would have smartened up. It's not because they're Israel as opposed to, you know, America or uh, France or Russia or whomever, whatever other Babylonia, whatever sort of nation in whatever time period is because they're, they're human beings. And they've, they've gone down a path that, you know, um, they weren't expected to be perfect. The covenant was not about them being perfect, right? Paul talks about keeping the covenant and he's being serious. He kept the covenant. Doesn't mean he's sinless, but it means that he did what was required under the law in the cases where he veered away. And he calls himself, you know, a Jew of the Jews. Um, but if it's all down to sovereignty and all down to truth, then God is going to stick with that and say, you know, I've bound myself to this. I'm not breaking my word. That's not how it works with God. And yet God said, you know, on the one hand, I'm not going to break my word. And on the other hand, we're going to go to a right place. And so it's all about how Jesus came and lived and existed, and did, and then ultimately followed through. You know, and is there is there tremendous... See, when I hear this spoken about in, um, um, you know, theology, theological texts, and I'm even, I'm looking at uh, Van Hooser, Kevin Van Hooser's The Big Dra the Drama of Doctrine, uh, and I've got a number of his books. I've got three or four of his books sitting together on my shelf, and, and in the drama of doctrine, uh, you know, it's nice. It's on Google Books. I can search it. And part of my, what I did for my thesis is I'm, I'm, re I'm reading this book, but I'm also searching it. I can do a word search. I can pull up all the words. And he's constantly talking about obedience. This is an act of obedience for Jesus to follow through and go to the cross. This is also an act of love. 
maybe more so an act of love. Obedience out of what? Why be obedient? Because you're God and it's true? Because you're sovereign? Not a particularly sovereign moment for God. But that has a double edge to it too, because the, the I hear what you're saying about focusing on Christ loves so much that he was willing to go to the cross. But I feel like that's used in the same way. In the same way that you use how much pain he experienced, it's like in the same way, well, mm-hmm. he loves you this much. So, I don't know, maybe that's a, I'm thinking out loud here, maybe that is a positive treatment that God loves you so much. I, I guess it's I guess it's how far that gets pushed. Because if it's, if it's left as Jesus loves you so much, and did this stop right there but it, mm-hmm. i feel like where it just goes it goes the wrong direction is then when it turns into jesus loved you so much and therefore what's wrong with you if you don't get on board or how could you leave this wonderful yeah. gift of love laying in the middle of the road you should pick it up i mean come on yeah well yeah and i what i'm focusing on is the difference between the uh, uh, just in other words, when I was searching through, you know, on the one hand, and I haven't mentioned Van Hooser before, but Van Hooser is huge on the evangelical horizon. Uh, he's a Cambridge grad, and I, I know a lot about his work because uh, my mentor, Greg Lowry, and, you know, Greg, as you know, also from Swiss Labrie, is in very good touch, touch with Kevin Van Hooser. And, um, you know, I've, I've, as a result, got to know Kevin Van Hooser's work quite a bit. But it was the, this, I guess I'm not saying that uh, that if Jesus going to the cross was an act of love, that this should inspire you to love, or this is the basis upon which you should develop a love relationship. I'm simply saying that seeing this as an act of love should be the first way we see it. And instead, when I look in the drama of doctrine, and I look in some of the other texts, I don't see very much at all about love in that sense. I see a lot about uh, gratitude. I see a lot about that as an act of obedience. You know, and I've quoted him in, in my thesis and in my grad work. Uh, and I was looking for, you know, tell me that this is an act of love. Help me understand that from this perspective. Show me this, in other words, from the perspective of God as Father, in addition to God as Sovereign. Show me this from the, uh, with an emphasis on love, in addition to an emphasis on truth. And I'm not seeing it. But I would also say that, no, it's, you know, what I was saying earlier about Jesus coming and living and being and doing for and doing to these people. My own experience of loving God is not based on, you know, seeing Jesus act of, um, on the cross as an act of love. It's that I see Jesus uh, uh, dying on the cross or going to the cross or being willing to, be, to, to go that far and, 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 and indeed going there as an act of love, because I have experienced things in my life for me, in the particularity of who I am and the specificity of my identity and my hurts and my woundedness, that are acts clearly of love in that they are, they are ways of healing, renewing, remaking of me. And this is what you see time and time again through the gospel stories. And what I would urge people is that this is precisely what God is interested in doing for us, to us, with us. That God is interested in making us whole. That God, you know, uh, in a recent blog post, I brought out the, 
Velveteen Rabbit. And uh, it's just a, it's a beautiful story, you know, and that we are loved to the point that we become real. But the loving that we receive through God is very often this sort of way of coming in touch with us that demonstrates, first of all, that we are known truly. We are truly known more than we know ourselves. That our identity, in other words, in a certain sense, it's, it's, it's kind of affirming that our identity comes from God and that God, as the one who knows that identity most truly, is the one who is able to see in, see the issues, see the hurts, and touch those areas, bring healing to those areas, open possibilities in those areas that are most needed. And in the second part, that that is one of the most profound acts of love imaginable. And so when we look at the Gospels and we're reading these stories, you're seeing Jesus loving these people all over the place. I mean, yes, there are the times in Mark, particularly at the beginning, where Jesus is saying, you know, it goes into the village. I think this is Mark 1 or 2. And uh, he heals a bunch of people and he goes off and, uh, you know, he, he heals them all through the night, in fact. And then he goes off early to, to pray and the disciples are looking for him and they finally find him. So, you know, there's lots of people looking for you. And he said, we've got to go to the neighboring villages because that's why I came. In other words, it's not just about healing people. It's about, it's about teaching people. It's about telling people. It's about giving them the story of what's going on about the kingdom of God. And so those two things work together, but they're never, ever, ever, it's never just sort of, God's here to talk to my head. No, no, it's, it's, it's both. It's the full person. God's interested in all of who we are that we might fully engage as our full selves in the project that God has set as God's greatest project, which is the coming about of the kingdom of God, which is the renewal of all things as a claim that God makes upon all things. These are mine and I love them and I value them and I desire them. And in that project of rehabilitating those things of God's desire, we are called as both the chief, if you like, recipients, those most privileged to be most desired, and as those who are called to work for the furtherance of that desire, which is the spread of relationship and ultimately the coming about of the fullness of who we are as we are drawn not only out of the difficulties and hurts, but drawn to ourselves within a relationship with God. And that for me is the beauty of this whole thing. Go, that it's about, talk to me. Now go back to what Van Hooser is saying about obedience. Because this is, this is probably uh, one area of where the definition of love that you have is far as I understand it, that I never quite buy into. <laughs> so, cause, okay. cause I always hear love for you as this swept away, infatuated, uh, swept off your feet, uh, wonderful thing. And, and when we talk about, or in the past when we've talked about, duty or obligation or and maybe you could translate in th that into obedience being part of that my recollection is you've pushed against that so what what what's van hooser saying about obedience how does it tie in here and what, what clarifications do we need to your viewpoint of love here one thing if you're asking me what my view is that's great but if you're asking me about van hooser i want to be very specific that i'm not misquoting him well 
yeah, because I guess what comes to me is the the idea of that we've dis we've discussed obedience before, and I think we've typically discussed it in kind of a negative, duty bound uh, view that we didn't really go along with. And so, as as you're saying it, I'm sitting here thinking, I think there could be there could potentially be a place for duty uh, in a love relationship where I translate duty into obedience. And maybe that's not fair. Yeah. And I'm not, I'm not pushing back against the idea of duty, but I'm saying that duty springs out of desire in a love relationship. Duty comes out of desire the other way around. But sometimes the desire isn't there. Uh, yeah, that, that's true. And, and I think what you've got then, you know, so you can have an arranged marriage and you can say somebody treats, you know, they're in an arranged marriage, they treat their spouse well out of uh, respect for the, the value of that um, contract. And I would say, okay, well, that's cool. And they're, they're fulfilling a contractual obligation. I don't think that's desire, right? It's duty. Can duty breed desire? Yeah, I think it can, providing that there's that type of openness in the relationship, right? Um, but I, I don't think that there's a guarantee there. I certainly don't think that everybody who gets into uh, an arranged marriage would say that, you know, oh, yeah, I, I eventually, eventually we got to love each other. I mean, if that were the case, then why, are, why, why has Western society balked against the idea of arranged marriage? Why have we moved away from that? Like it's, uh, like it's treating people like chattel. Right, it's forcing people to, to to do things like there were. Uh, what is chattel? <laughs> chattel's like word. goods. Oh. It's goods. Chattel's like my furniture. Okay, my furniture and my belongings are my chattel. Right, so so people aren't aren't belongings. They're not objects. They're subjects. They're they're um, they're choice makers. And by respecting choice where choice is uh, theoretically at least in western society this is one of the areas where choice is the most important how i spend my money and where i devote my love energies are the most some of the most important evidences and 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 outworkings of being a subject being a thinking acting choosing being in our moment of history in western society so would i say that nobody's ever come out of an arranged marriage and fallen in in love i would never say that would I say that it's the norm? Uh, no, and I think you'd be nuts to do so. I think it's the exception. I think, the, you know, at best, what typically happens is you settle into a routine. You know, and if people are generally amicable, and if situations and circumstances outside of the, their kind of personalities and the way they relate just on their own in a little bubble, if those circumstances are generally friendly, you know, if they're not going through a war or if they're not going through, you know, having their, their children get fall ill and, and all these other things, um, maybe you can come out with, a, you know, a, a generally kind of even keeled sort of relationship. That sounds like Christianity, it, some strains of Christianity. Wow. Really? Well, the the idea that that it's duty and it isn't I'm kind of riff on this idea. This is off the top of my head, so I could change my mind <laughs> at the okay. end. But uh I'll take the the claim that you do, which is you figure it out as you're talking about it. Um yeah. No, and in a sense it is an arranged an arranged relationship in that I I'm thinking of maybe myself growing up in church 
And mm-hmm. it, it it was kind of an arranged situation in that I just went and participated because, well, as I was younger, I had to. And yeah. as I was older, because of duty and because I was supposed to, with, and then it got to the point where there were just hopes that, yes, it would turn into, quote, a love relationship. And then it didn't. And years went uh, by, and now you and I are talking. Can I put a couple questions to you? Oh, yeah. You said there were hopes that it would turn into a love relationship. How, how were, I guess, two questions for you. How were those hopes expressed? And how was that love relationship modeled? Well, the hopes were expressed as in in duty and trying harder, and the, the I can't remember your second question. The, How was it modeled? Like wh- the model was was what other people, what I perceived as other people having, and I still don't know what to make of that. In other words, these other people were I perceived them as as having this fervent, wonderful relationship with God. And uh, for some reason, I didn't have those that same experience and those same feelings, but they did. And so somehow, hopefully, eventually I would get there. How was that, that fervent, wonderful relationship? What did it look like? Well, what made it ferv- fervent and, and wonderful in your eyes? Oh, that, you know, it was this idea of this, of a wonderful human love relationship, this this other person is always there for you. They take care of you. They fully get and know you. They delight in you. You delight in them. And mostly, and mostly these things. Well, at least what I'm picturing right now in my head is is a Sunday morning service with. <laughs> this is what we used to call Mister Microphone. You know, they'd be walking around with these big wireless microphones. You know, talking about how wonderful God was and. Wasn't it a great week? And don't we love Jesus so much? Let's sing another song. And half of me thinking, it's not the kind of week that I had, but, um, <laughs> and surely you didn't, you don't have this week, week after week that you talk about every Sunday, but maybe you really do. And, and maybe there's hardship in your life and, and maybe it does turn out okay for you. That's what half of me thought. The other half of me is just like, are you for real? This just seems too good to be true. So there's a level of kind of internal subconscious conflict, I think, too. I hear you saying the words, you know, supposed to be this fulfilling love relationship, be desired. But I don't understand how that was. How did you connect fulfilling love relationship or being desired with actual actions? How were your expectations set based on what these people either lived out in front of you or what they explained of the parts of their lives that weren't, vis- weren't visible to you? I think it was more of an intellectual exercise. It was, it, was more of, it was more of what they were talking about and proclaiming as happening or possible versus <laughs> something I experienced from them. I mean, this is at a church where, you know, there's like a thousand people in the service. So it, it's kind of hard to get personal. My questions came out of your question about um, duty within love, and I'm trying to uh, push the point that I don't think that duty comes first. Rather, duty comes as a result of desire. It comes out of desire. And um, 
you know, I do have moments where I'm called back. And I guess for me, for me, when I formulate this, so particularly when I'm in situations where I have conflicting desires, that's where truth comes in. But to go back to, to real quick, though, your point about duty coming from desire, all I can guess on that is that having receiving the teachings of duty and really kind of absorbing those, maybe that part I just got backwards. In other words, without without the oh, this is interesting. Without the des- without the desire being able to kind of grow and flourish and grow on its own out of my own experiences or out of my own learnings, because mm-hmm. after all, you got to decide where you want to spend eternity. Going to be in heaven or hell? Well, you need God if you want to go to heaven. So believe in God, and then believe in God, and then do everything that He says out of duty. Yeah, and you see, that's where for me the the the, the, the this is the, our famous. You know, we've we've quoted this many times. I was in trying podcasts. not to say page twenty one. <laughs> I have no such inhibitions. <laughs> not a fan, Kyle Eidelman, page twenty one. Where do you want to spend eternity, heaven or hell? Perhaps that's the most important question there is, and what the reason we've been set on this earth. And I think when we approach Christianity that way, the confusion. And I will be so bold as to call it confusion that I'm hearing you describe. And I'm not saying that you are confused. No, I, th- I think, I think I, it's yeah, I'm that. totally willing to wear the badge of confusion. <laughs> well, I, you may be confused, but I think that you come by it honestly because where I'm going is to say that when we take that as our polar star in terms of what Christianity is about, what this relationship with God is supposed to, what it's supposed to come out of and be oriented by we're screwed up. That totally, where's love in there? All I'm doing is saving my ass. Pardon me, but it's not about saving my ass. I mean, on the one hand, yes, it is, right? If I'm looking down, I I don't know if there's a tiger in the next room, somebody tells me there's a tiger in the next room and I believe them and I have good reason to believe them. My first thought is, how do I make sure that that tiger doesn't get to me? And it is about saving my butt. Right? I am invested in my own life and in my own well-being. True enough. But there are so many questions that would precede this whole idea of heaven and hell. Well, what do you mean? What do you mean heaven? Hold on. Slow down. How do we get here? What's going on here? Who is this guy anyways that's calling all the shots? Because it's obviously not me. I have a choice in the matter, but I can't choose to not play. Right? Or if I do choose to not play, that's a totally different you know, scenario. And a lot of people do choose that. And they choose not to play, which means being agnostic or atheist, or maybe being of a different religious perspective. But specifically being agnostic and atheist in North America is choosing not to play. It is saying, you know what, these two options are loaded. Because you got a bad, it's a good cop, bad cop option here, or something something like that. And again, the, the very starting place removes the possibility to begin where we should be beginning, with love with God loving us, with this love relationship being enormous, with it being demonstrated through the entire Gospels, with it being, you know, um, again, you you and I have talked about this, this whole idea that that came out of, you know, early Christian theological formation with Augustine, and he's working against the Neoplatonics, and, you know, he's there formulating creation. And how did creation happen? Well, it, it happened ex nihilo, and he's working back against Plato, 
and the Platonic ideas and the Timaeus of this primordial stuff, this kind of matter that just always was, not sentient like God, but somehow on the same level with God because it was eternal. And so he wants to push back against that. That's cool. I agree with him. I don't have anything wrong with ex nihilo. It's just, it's incomplete because we're stuck there. We just sit there. Like creation is about how. No, excuse me. Creation first, is, first of all is about why. Why did God do this in the first place? And some of these why questions need to come out and they need to have answers and need to have good answers. Why did God create? You know, and that, that takes us into page 73, 72, 73 of Darren Hufford, 72. That, Darren, I mean, that's where Darren's kind of, he's, he's, he's bringing out the gold. He's saying, here you go, have some of my gold. And I think he's dead on there. But I, I don't want to jump quite there yet. I want to say, first of all, that uh, you asked me about Van Hooser. So, drama of doctrine. Uh, the drama of doctrine, a canonical linguistic approach to Christian theology by Kevin J. Van Hooser on page 390. And I quote, the content of the cross that saves the world is Jesus' filial obedience. Jesus, as a son, being obedience. My comment, yet if obedience is the how of salvation, it is not the why. Why did Jesus obey? Because he loved God the Father and loved us. So if obedience is the cross's content, in other words, what makes it effective, love is its motivation, the raison d'etre, the thing that got the whole process going in the first place. And we miss this. We miss this. You know, um, and I've got another quote in here from Van. I haven't, I, I'm going back into my thesis, uh, you know, footnotes here. I haven't read some of this in a while, but um, I'm trying to think of where I. Uh, um, so, what you were just reading, that was your reflections on Van Hooser, or that was what he says? Oh, no, no, no. The, the one quote that, that I have, and, and there's more, there's much more on this, right? But um, no, his quote is, the content of the cross that saves the world is Jesus' filial obedience, his, his sonly obedience, his obedience as a son to the Father. That that's what does it. And I'm talking about the how of salvation and the why. The how, like the how of creation versus the why. The why conditions the how. The why gives the how its proper context and helps us to understand what's going on. When we don't have that why, we lose the point. We take the how to be sufficient and dominant. And it's neither. Because there's much more going on. It's just the how. I, I, I very rarely hear why. I very rarely hear people going there. I hear it being a lot about obedience. And I think out of that, you know, if, we, if we're portraying Jesus as being primarily obedient, what are we supposed to be? Obedient. Woohoo! Yeah! Jesus is in love. He is in love with God. He's in love with us. You know, and, and I don't want to just say it as he loves us. He loves God. I want to say in love, meaning this is a guiding preoccupation. It is a guiding preoccupation. It's not just a kind of a factor in there. It is a guiding preoccupation. God's guiding preoccupation with us is that God is in love with us. Indeed, God is love. God's whole nature is oriented that way. 
Well, the spooky music means only one thing. This episode's over, but another one's on the way. Thanks for listening to Untangling Christianity. We'd love to hear your thoughts on this episode. So leave a comment at our website, untanglingchristianity.com slash 49. If you'd like to be notified by email when new episodes are released or other news, subscribe to our mailing list, also available in the right sidebar of the website. We welcome your questions, comments, or suggested future discussion topics by email. Send those to feedback at untanglingchristianity.com. And if you're looking for just one more way to give feedback on the podcast, we're running a survey. untanglingchristianity.com slash survey. Music on this podcast is made available by Kevin McLeod over at incompetech.com and is licensed under a Creative Commons license. Thank him for his generosity by supporting him at his website. Tune in next week for a new episode.